This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Nations of the world require their populations to have children in order to sustain society. But the ways countries support new families varies greatly. Parents in the United States are given less supports than in other nations in a variety of ways. And the questions around how we support new mothers and fathers are posed regularly by advocates who point to more generous policies abroad as goals to strive for in the future of parenting in the United States. My guest on this episode is Dr. Annie Selleck, and we discuss ways the Catholic Church could be a leader in the ways it supports its employees raising young families through the early months and years of parenting. Dr. Annie Selleck is a systematic theologian specializing in the Roman Catholic Church in the United States. She earned her PhD from Boston College and is also a graduate of the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley and Santa Clara University. Dr. Selleck's dissertation, Toward an Ecclesial Vision in the Shadow of Wounds, examined the wounds of racism and sexism in the Roman Catholic Church, utilizing contemporary trauma theory and the ecclesiology of Karl Rahner. Dr. Selleck currently serves as Associate Director of the Women's Center at Georgetown University, and you can follow her work on Twitter at A. Selleck. That's A-S-E-L-A-K. As a parent myself, this conversation is one I enjoyed tremendously as I think of my fellow citizens navigating the struggles of employment while parenting. Without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Annie Selleck. Dr. Annie Selleck, welcome to Classical Ideas. It's great to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm absolutely delighted and excited for the conversation we're about to have. I've been looking through a lot of your work the last several days, and this is a conversation that I'm particularly excited about. But before we get into the content of our conversation, I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Great. Well, my name is Dr. Annie Selleck. I'm a systematic theologian, and I study the Catholic Church in the United States. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I currently am working as the Associate Director of the Women's Center at Georgetown University. So while I'm from California, I live in Washington, D.C. with my family now. Fabulous. Well, I'm a big fan of Washington, D.C. and Southern California. So you are touching on two of the places in the world that I deeply love. Um, so, Annie, you are on a show here with me, and I'm really excited to learn about your expertise. Um, and I really want to come to understand how you came about this path that has led you to being um, in your field of study, a systematic theologian, uh, studying the Catholic Church, and an expert in these content areas. And so I'm wondering if we can trace a little bit about your academic path and bio, because I'm curious about some of your notable turning points on your academic journey. I know you're at Santa Clara, Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley and Boston College, but I'm curious a little bit about your academic uh, trajectory, if you will. Yeah, so I think with my academic trajectory, um, it's important to note that I never intended to be a theologian, right? <laughs> there are some people who always wanted to get a doctorate. I did not see myself doing that um, and kind of wound up here through twists and turns. Mm. Um, so when I started at Santa Clara, um, I started college um, September 12th, 2001, mm -hmm. right? So right in the midst of the September 11th um, terror attacks. 
And so that led me to study political science and religious studies, right? The intersection of political science and religious studies oh, was yeah. really how I was trying to make sense of the world, make sense of um, everything around me, yeah. right? That, so I think, um, I know for many of us in that generation who were in college during September 11th, um, that was the way we were trying to to make sense of what was going on at the war in Iraq and um, peace protests and things like that, right? Um, and I had always wanted to um, be on the Supreme Court, always intended to go into politics. Fabulous. Um, but then worked in my congressman's office and hated it. <laughs> and so started looking for different paths and kind of wound up in religion through through that sense of um, that particular moment in in the U.S. and in in the world, um, like a good graduate of a Jesuit college, I did Jesuit Volunteer Corps in Detroit, Michigan, um, and that was really a great experience of um, opening my eyes to a reality beyond my narrow experience in mm. California, um, and that led me to want to pursue an MDiv um, at the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley. I had no intention of going into ministry, but I thought that the type of person I wanted to be um, was a person who approached their work of ministry um, as ministry. I still thought like, maybe I'll work in politics. Maybe, um, maybe I'll do social work. Um, and through um, that MDiv and formation as a lay minister in the Catholic church, um, again, that was a process of opening my eyes to a reality beyond me and really wanting to as well, change the church from within. Sure. Um, so being in formation with Jesuits, um, an order of Catholic priests, these were men who had been in formation for about a decade at that point. And at graduation, they would be ordained to the priesthood. Yep. And I would begin this nebulous career as a lay minister, which people don't really know what that is or what to do with women in the church who went to seminary. Yeah. Um, Right. Even saying that, I'm assuming most listeners have no idea what a lay minister is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you can and you can say and you can say what it is yeah. if you'd like to. Yeah. So, I mean, even defining it's really difficult <laughs> um, because so a lay minister is a person who ministers in the church who is not ordained. Um, so they can be any gender identity. Um and they might do things like work at a Catholic high school, work at a Catholic university. Um, there are also a lot of lay ministers at parishes. Um, so running religious education, youth ministry are the most common roles. But we also see lay ministers in parish administrator roles mm -hmm. where they might run the parish, do all the administration, and then a priest presides over the sacramental life of the parish. So presides at Sunday masses, at weddings and funerals, things like that. Um, lay ministers work in um, prisons, doing prison ministry, in hospitals, doing chaplaincy. Um, so my own experience of lay ministry was working in Catholic education. Um, so I worked at an all-girls Catholic high school, and then also I ran a dorm at a Catholic university. Um, and that was a really interesting experience of um, Catholic ministry, um, because in many ways I was pastor of a dorm, like sure. pastor of a parish, but that parish was a dorm. So anything <laughs> that fell under the life of that dorm, right, whether it was uh, leaky pipes, I learned a lot about like leaky roofs and tuck pointing it. and things like that, um, did a total renovation of the chapel within. So a lot of like sacred art, we would have mass in the dorm twice a week, um, any sort of like pastoral counseling, but then it was also a college dorm, right? So I'm also like really good at assisting with drunk people sure. and like assessing when a drunk person's okay and when they need medical intervention. Um, so yeah, lots of different experience with that. And through that experience is actually what led me to get my PhD. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, I guess my first piece of public scholarship, Wonderful. Um, right in the wake of when um, Pope Benedict resigned from the papacy, right? And this, if you think back several years ago when that happened, this was unprecedented. No one knew that a pope could really resign. Um, so I wrote a piece on the church that young Catholics want. What are our hopes as, as a young Catholic? What is my hope for the new papacy? Um, 
And that experience, as I'm sure many others who have written publicly, um, especially people who hold any marginalized identities, right? So as a Catholic woman, um, that can be a marginalized identity. That was met with a lot of um, trolls, threats, um, threats of violence, um, you know, a horrible backlash. Um, yet also, it really resonated with some people too. Yeah. Um, right. It's not always the negative, though. Well, the, the the threats stand out. Yeah. And I, I did an episode on the podcast uh, recently about the woman priest movement, about the movement to ordain women to take it beyond this lay ministry. And it was the most negative feedback I ever received for the entire history of this podcast was talking about the woman priest movement. And my my Twitter was blowing up um, for for people that were really displeased with the content of the episode and the fact that I was even talking about this on a show. And I'm like, listen, I am one person that this is, this is like, this is a very specific project. And um, so I, I, I know exactly what you mean about that pushback. And I can only, and as a, a man doing a show like this, I can only imagine the exponential nature of those threats and uh, inappropriate messages you probably received. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also want to note that too, like I am a white woman. Um, so the, I exercise privilege in that way as well, right. That um, colleagues who like represent, who are um, part of more discriminated against and oppressed mm -hmm. identities, right. Yeah. Um, that they experience it tenfold. Um, yeah. But so as I wrote this um, piece in the post, then what happened is my university came and said, look, we can't protect you. You don't have tenure. Keep right. Like basically be quiet or you're fired. Wow. Um, and nothing really makes you want to write like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was a combination for me of feeling like I had something to say that was resonating, but also like I didn't have all the skills that I needed to to address the church like I wanted to. Um, so, and that's kind of the perfect vocational discernment for getting a PhD, right? You have something to say, but you also need further training. Right. Um, so that led me to pursue um, my doctorate in Catholic systematic theology, um, where essentially I look at the question of who and what is the church, who is included in the church, who is excluded in the church, and how can we be church in a better way? Mm. Can you define that term really quick, systematic theologian and systematic theology? What does that mean for the listeners out there? Because I've never talked about that term even a single time in the entire four years I've been running this show. Yeah, so systematic theology looks at a lot of the doctrine questions in theology. So things like Christology, anthropology, ecclesiology, what is the church? What are humans? How do humans relate to God? Um, where does Jesus figure in? What about the end times? Um, so they look at these different doctrines. I think of it as like the meat and potatoes of theology, right? Mm -hmm. That like core part. And then you can apply it to ethics. Then you can apply it to ministry. Um, you know, of course, history informs it. Of course, scripture informs it. Um, but it's really looking at like those core questions of, um, in this case, specifically Catholic doctrine. Um, so again, mine is ecclesiology is my specialty. So what is the church? How do we consider the church? Um, and I try to look at that specifically within the United States. Wonderful. Well, we're going to come back to that in just a second. I have another question because you mentioned earlier having realizing that you had a voice that was within that had things to say that you needed help bringing to the surface and so going into a phd program getting writing advice and getting research advice and all that is such a wonderful part of a phd program and then after you finished you're in the world now working professionally and you are now part of this sacred rights public scholarship training cohort and i'm wondering how you can feel your own skills developing now being a part of this uh, very public facing uh, research agenda driven organization like Sacred Rights. How are you still growing that skill set? Yeah, Sacred Rights is amazing. Um, if there's any listeners who are thinking about becoming involved, it's I have only wonderful things to say. Um, what Sacred Rights has been really helpful for me in doing um, is one demystifying the publishing process, right? So looking at here's how you pitch. I didn't know how to pitch before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't, when editors said pitch me, I had no idea what that meant, right? So <laughs> learning, <laughs> learning how to pitch people. Um, 
but also this idea that any sort of public scholarship that we do should really be focused on one idea, right? So I'm not taking everything I know about Catholic theology and including it in every piece of public scholarship that I write, even though I desperately want to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think of it a lot. Um, and one thing we talk about a lot is how we can approach it like we approach teaching a class, right? So many of us are teachers. And in each class, you have maybe one or two content goals, right? And so in our public scholarship, I try to frame my work like that. What is the one thing I want people to know from reading this? Um, and that, and then all, everything else I include serves that one learning objective. So that's been really helpful for me. Um, as well as the other thing that I really like is identifying the different areas that we can contribute in, right? So is it podcasts? and talking with someone right and like we're doing now mm -hmm. um is it an explainer piece like maybe um it's writing i have um like explainer pieces now drafted from this training on um that are ready to go next time the pope says something that's really confusing about women i want to contribute to public scholarship by right can, can contribute to the conversation about okay how do we actually understand what the pope just said where does this fit in does everything the pope say is infallible spoiler alert no no right. it's not we interpret all these things differently um so looking at ways of contributing around that your desire to be involved in the commentary around like papal announcements and things like that is so important because that is something that people can tie themselves in knots analyzing and to have people like you dedicated to being on the front lines of discussing those things publicly for large audiences is like essential um, as the church moves into this next generation of like you mentioned earlier, your article about what does the future of the church look like? Like you can be commenting on that for the rest of your career, which is mm -hmm. so cool. Um, I do want to know more, a little bit more about your research agenda, if that's okay. Yeah. So you have this dissertation called Toward an Ecclesial Vision in the Shadow of Wounds. This is a very, very interesting and mysterious title to me because the shadow of wounds is something that I think that a lot of people, if they followed the history of the church in the last several decades, can you know, come to some of their own uh, understanding of what that means. And you're examining the wounds of racism and sexism in the Roman Catholic Church. And I've touched on these topics a little bit with other sacred rights scholars like Brian Kleitz and Tia Pratt, who both are doing amazing work in this field as well. But your dissertation, you know, kind of branches off from Brian and Tia a little bit because you're writing about contemporary trauma theory and the ecclesiology of Karl Rahner. And I don't really know much about either of those terms. And so I never pass up a chance, as you know, to talk about something new for the first time. So I'm wondering if you can walk me a little bit through this dissertation topic, um, maybe a little bit of an overview of the, some of your highlighted findings, and then talk about trauma theory and Rahner in general. Yeah. So when we think of the church, that's a really broad topic. And when I think of the church and I think of my friends, my students, most of the time, a lot of people have an experience of church that is off-putting in some ways, right? So I've listened to some past episodes, Greg, where you've talked about like, ex like going to uh, like growing up Catholic and then the clergy sex abuse crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And your interview with Brian Kleitz addresses that, right? So kind of my research takes that as a starting point and says like, these areas actually of disconnect, these areas of really true harm in the church, really deep hurt in the church, this is where we need to start to do theology, right? We shouldn't start in this big abstract, what is the church? But these areas of disconnect are where I want to do theology, looking at when the church fails to authentically be church. Mm. So my dissertation names these as wounds. So I specifically look at racism and sexism in the church as wounds. Um, a lot of what Tia Noel Pratt talked about, um, again, is this jumping off point, whereas, you know, looking at the exclusion of um, men from the black men from the priesthood and black women from religious life. How does that wound the church in the past? And how does it continue to wound us now? So taking that thesis that these 
these things wound the church. They stop the church from authentically being able to church. This is where then I start getting, you know, the creative theological research. So I use trauma theory as a tool to respond to those wounds. Trauma theory is really complex. Mm -hmm. Um, The basic understanding is that there's an originating wound, right? So a lot of trauma theory uses Freud and things like that. So like there's an originating train wreck is what Freud uses a lot, right? A train Mm. accident. That doesn't stay in the past. The only harm from that is not the specific train accident, but the way that that continues to be experienced in the present and in the future. So wounds aren't contained by chronological time. So I take that basic idea that room that wounds are repeated, that they can't be contained in the past. And I try to take that complexity and I say, okay, that complexity of wounds, Catholic theology doesn't crumble under that. In fact, Karl Rahner's theology has the ability to hold those paradoxes. So Karl Rahner, super important Catholic theologian, he was a Jesuit, so and part of the Jesuits are Society of Jesus, but Pope Francis is a Jesuit. Um, he basically says, um, he looks at the church and says, the church can hold many paradoxes. So God reveals God's self through the church. God also reveals God's self beyond the church. God is transcendent. God, you know, cannot we cannot put God in a box. God is everywhere all the time. Yet that transcendence alone would present a God that's like very distant, right? So God is also radically imminent, close to us. Um, the church is both sinful and holy. So how can we hold these things together? So I use a lot of his complexity around the church, um, this paradoxical nature of understanding the church um, to hold the challenges presented by wounds and trauma theory. And then from that, I look at what does it mean to be a church in the shadow of wounds? Mm. So what does it mean today? How can we live as a church in a way that is honest about our wounds right? That we can't just like pretend that we're perfect. Yeah. (laughs) But what does it mean to say like, no, we've actually caused a lot of harm around racism. We've, the church is racist today to say that, to name that and then say, okay, how are we going to become an anti-racist church, right? The church has um, excluded women, excluded non-binary persons, excluded trans persons. Um, How can we grapple with that today and become a more authentic church? that acknowledges our wounds, but also is bigger, right? And how do we address that? Um, So I try to do ecclesiology from the site of the wound um, while also proposing a vision of the church um, that is very honest about where we are with the hopes of how how can we credibly be church? How can we be church in a way that's credible? Mm. Well, and I'm also thinking about things like say a man or a woman goes off to war and they experience tremendous amounts of trauma in a like a conflict situation and then they carry that with them for the rest of their life and the way that they transfer their wounds to future generations within their own family you can see where it's a cumulative effect over a long period of time if you don't have those reckonings and if you don't have those acknowledgments along the way that you can work on them incrementally for many years afterwards. So like ignoring the original wounds is such a, such tremendous, um, you know, it's, it's got so much danger. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's some really exciting theology being done kind of at the intersection of trauma theory um, and theology. So for instance, Stephanie Edwards and Kim Humphrey do a lot of work looking at epigenetics, which is this idea that trauma is transferred from generation to generation within our genetics, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. So, the, and this is something that there's there's like a lot of bioethics around. So they put that in conversation with original sit, mm. right? So they're so they're doing I think really important work there. Shelley Rambo at Boston University is doing work around moral injury. So especially looking at soldiers, like what is the injury? Um, within, right? What is the moral injury around that? And how do we theologically respond to that? Um, so there's a lot of exciting work at the intersection of trauma and theology. 
I love it. Well, and it also sounds like you are personally addressing uh, many different kinds of shortcomings of the church. Like you're not just sticking into like a certain area because like I know that you are also uh, interested in the shortcomings of the ways that the church serves modern families as well. And an article of yours that I was really excited about because I'm a parent myself and I've dealt with um, the strangeness of the American system of how we support uh, parents of newborns and infants in our society. And I've noticed a lot of contradictions in the way that this is a country that seems to present itself as being very pro-family and things like that, while while the actions uh, and support networks don't really back up those sentiments. And so an article of yours that I found that I loved is called What the Church Owes Families, Paid Family Leave Would Help Build a Culture of Life. And your article was so gripping because you address the ways that the church can be more pro-family. And I was totally enthralled reading this. And I'm wondering if you can take the listener through uh, to set the stage, the reality of what it's like for new mothers who go back to work eight weeks after giving birth to a, a new baby. Yeah. So I wrote this article when um, my youngest child was eight weeks old. And that was the date that I was scheduled to go back to work at a Catholic university. Um, that eight weeks number was actually brand new um, because the District of Columbia, starting July 1st, 2020, said we're going to provide every one eight weeks of paid family leave, paid family leave. So um, that addresses both adoption and birth um, parents, um, as well as like both caretakers, as well as it addresses paid family leave, um, as the COVID-19 epidemic has made us so aware of, um, for other family members that we care for, right? Prior to this eight weeks by the District of Columbia, um, my, my university addressed it kind of on like an ad hoc basis. So I was allowed to take as much leave as my doctor recommended, no more than six weeks, right? So at eight weeks, what was that like? Um, I was maybe sleeping for four hours at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Sleep is the first thing parent that people think of when they think of newborns. It's very real. But I was also still recovering from major abdominal surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so I am lucky to live about a mile from my job. So I walked to work. I could not walk a mile at that point. Um, I could walk maybe like four blocks at that point. So I had no idea how I was supposed to get to work. Um, now, luckily, we were at that point had turned virtual, so I didn't have to address that, right? But the, just this idea that I was supposed to somehow transport myself to campus. Um, I was um, either feeding my daughter or pumping every three to four hours. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes, you know, about like 30-ish minutes at a time. So those are huge chunks. If you think of your workday, if every two to three hours, you have to block out 30 to 45 minutes. It's really hard to get anything done. But also my hormones were through the roof. Um, so I'd have to change my clothes several times a day because I would either sweat through them mm -hmm. or breast milk would leak, which like no one wants to talk about, right? right. No one wants to talk about that aspect. Um, but I was also just kind of going on autopilot through most things, right? So I, um, your memory, your brain actually like changes um, changes shapes in pregnancy and in postpartum. Um, so I couldn't remember a lot of things, um, I, both like short-term memory and long-term memory. And this is common. This is like by evolutionarily what we landed on, right? That mm. you forget a lot of things. Um, my job right now is in student services. So in that I have a lot of, um, like I respond to a lot of emergencies, so whether that's like sexual assault or instances of university bias. So the university 
trusted me in that mental state to make a lot of judgment calls that sometimes like, I don't want to exaggerate things, right? But sometimes I'm making like life or death calls of whether, um, like whether a student is suicidal or not, wow. right? Yeah. Um, and even so my child now is a year old. I was reminded when she turned a year old that there is like another hormonal shift. And now suddenly I realize that for the past year, I have not felt like myself. Mm. That in the past year I was operating like at a much lower mental capacity than at any point I was aware of. Because now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my brain thinks differently. My brain thinks like myself again. I didn't realize that in January it didn't. Um, so I didn't realize six months ago, it didn't, I thought I was full capacity, but now I realize, like, nope, I was nowhere near full capacity. Well, and then you add the pandemic on top of that. And like, so few of us are actually at full capacity ever right now. And it's so frustrating to like, as I think about my own lack of productivity here and there, like I'm critical of my own performance within my job, just like anybody. And then to add all the details on top of that, what you just said, makes me realize just how like how stratospheric my own differences would be if I also added all the variables on top of my life that you just described. So do you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's profound to think about that. Like, wow, I really struggled in XYZ, but if I had ABC as well, like it would have been so much harder. I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Was this your first time that you got interested in the complexity of the American family leave system? Well, I think for a long time, um, I've always noted that what we ask of new parents um, is ridiculous, right? Um, That there is no guaranteed paid family leave for the birthing parent or the non-birthing parent, um, right? That this is something that is ridiculous. This is um, my second child. So I think that my eyes were open to this in a cute way um, with my first child. Um, But I think there's, I mean, and there's a lot of different ways to look at this, right? Um, So the fact that one, there's no guarantee of paid family leave is when someone has a child is the first, but also there's no guarantee of paid family leave um, when someone has a miscarriage, right? And that's in fact, very rare for our workplaces to to um, offer leave as a result of that. Um, And again, I think the COVID-19 pandemic has opened our eyes to the many forms that caretaking can take and the many forms of responsibility that people have to family members. Mm. Um, And that there is no, there's no safety net, but there's not even like a bare minimum of compassion um, or awareness. Also, we can look at this from job performance, right? Like from a job performance way, we're asking people to perform critical jobs um, when they're not able to due to other responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, I personally view this very, very clearly in my brain as a culture of purposeful cruelty in a lot of ways. Like, I think that this is totally a cruel thing that the nation expects people to reproduce and have children, but they aren't willing to do the bare minimum to help us care for ourselves and those newborns. So we are a nation that values babies, but we don't do anything virtually to take care of the people who are making those babies. And yet we just expect those babies to arrive. And it has made me rethink parenting a lot and rethink my own choices about possibly becoming a parent again in the future, for sure. Like my eyes are wide open to the the narrow mindedness of these policies. And, you know, family leave is in the United States is a topic that I never really grasped before I lived in other places. And I lived in Canada and the UK as well. And I watched some of my friends in other countries have babies and then have these extremely generous leave policies. And then the light went on. And I found that it appeared to me the United States is really lacking in the ways that it cares about parents and newborns. And so it's a really challenging dilemma that we speak about. But you know, you also said you were lucky to have eight weeks um, because some Catholic institutions offer none at all. And herein lies a, an intense contradiction of this institution that publicly extols the virtues of family while not giving their own employees the time and space to properly nurture those families. So this is a contradiction that I'd like to thank you for your courageousness in addressing, because 
surely you don't take it lightly that you are speaking out about an institution that provides your own income. Does that make sense? Like this is an institution that you worked for that you are discussing ways that they can do better. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can reflect on what it's like to be within, but to um, encourage these, these new policies to be adapted for the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one that there's so many different ways to approach the, the real cruelty here, right? Um, so there's a contradiction between feeling lucky that I had eight weeks and naming that eight weeks is a cruel measure, right? Like that's a cruel amount of time to have that be the maximum offered. Um, in terms of that tension of naming this about my employer and right, I don't have academic freedom. So I took, um, care not to specifically name my employer yet a Google search can clearly trace back, um, where, where I work. Um, I think this is one where we need to have a robust vision of what the church can be and call the church to accountability when it fails to live up to that. Um, there's any, any way we look at the issue of paid family leave, it's clear that this is a life issue, right? So if there is paid family leave, rates of postpartum depression decrease, um, rates of domestic violence decrease, business output goes up, um, vaccinations of infants goes up, right? We're recording this in summer 2021, mm-hmm. where vaccinations are a huge issue around COVID-19, but like basic infant um, vaccinations go up if there's paid family leave. So eight weeks doesn't even cover the two-month appointment, which is when infants are first eligible for vaccines, right? Oh my so gosh. Right? This, so we think eight weeks is two months. No, like two months falls just outside that. So the eight weeks provided by my employer in my city did not cover that first appointment where infants can be vaccinated. Um, Oh my gosh. Right. So there's any way we look at life, right? Cause so we know life extends beyond birth. When we talk about being a pro-life church, it extends beyond issues of abortion. It extends beyond birth. Um, Any way we look at life, it is crucial that we're really building a, a robust culture of life. This also includes things like childcare, right? So I think again, the COVID-19 epidemic has exposed the many injustices around childcare in this country and the way that it's unsustainable. Um, so what would it mean if all Catholic employers, so by that I mean universities, parishes, schools, nonprofits, um, diocese, right? People who like work formally for the church. What would it mean if they provided a year of paid family leave and then subsidized childcare? Because to be just very upfront, my job at a well-paying Catholic institution does not cover childcare for my two children that I take a hit, my, our family takes a loss on that. That's an extreme privilege. Like even saying that in a podcast, I'm nervous about, right? There's so much privilege that comes with that, mm-hmm. um, being able to take that loss. Um, and there's a lot of factors that m- led us to make that decision. Um, but these are things that if the Catholic church wants to credibly be for a culture of life, they need to take seriously. So when I look at my students, Um, I see them questioning the Catholic church, not because of doctrinal issues, right? No one is saying, I think I'm going to leave the Catholic church because I'm not so sure about a triune God. I'm going to leave the Catholic church because I'm not so sure Jesus was fully human and fully divine, right? People aren't, that's not what's causing people to leave the church. They're coming to me saying like, I'm thinking of leaving the Catholic church because I look at the way they're talking about, um, my brother who is gay. Mm-hmm. My myself who is gay, right? Like they're looking at the way that the church teach uh, treats the LGBTQ community. Um, looking at things like, like I think this is where the church could really set the standard for what it means to care for families, right? This is an example where if the church did that, it would 
totally change conversations around the culture of life. Mm. I think it would change the conversations about what it means to be pro-life as well. And so this is a conversation that constantly comes up within the church. And I I just drove past the Catholic church yesterday that had a very, very specific message about pro-life on the sign out front of the church. And I was thinking about your articles. I drove past that. And I was thinking like, there's so much more that that sign could be saying. And I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for um, what, pro-life clubs in Catholic institutions could be doing to push church leaders to become national leaders on this issue? What can like normal Catholic people in the U.S. do to push these issues in the right direction? Is there any pressure that they can place? I think there's a huge amount of pressure that they can place. I think a lot of Catholic institutions are getting by on the fact that no one is thinking to ask them, what are their policies around paid family leave and childcare? So I think of um, if Catholic high schools and universities have pro-life clubs or Catholic parishes, if they started pressuring the administration to say, how much paid family leave do we provide and how can we expand that? Um, what childcare can we provide? What childcare incentives can we give people? That would radically change the experience of having children and having families for staff, staff who are Catholic and who aren't Catholic, right? Um, Because Catholic institutions employ a large um, diversity of people. Um, So I think that's huge. And I think it's such low hanging fruit um, that can be offered. So for instance, I was invited um, by a Catholic organization to attend a pro-life conference um, and I couldn't attend because they didn't offer me childcare and it was on a Saturday, right? So even things like that, what what would it mean to build in real changes that support families, right? Um, So, I mean, childcare and paid family leave are just so obvious and would make such huge impacts um, that, that I, it's the natural step. And then I also think there's an important way of that is something that moves us beyond um, such a polarized debate between pro-life and Mm -hmm. pro-choice. I think of all of the um, energy that the U.S. Catholic bishops are putting in right now to Joe Biden and communion and the question of Catholic politicians receiving communion. What would it look like if instead of spending all the um, time, money, energy around that question, the church instead said, we're going to provide a year paid leave for all staff who provide, who has children, adopts children. What an incredibly inviting way of being pro-life that would be. Amazing. I love it. You know, we wouldn't even be, I don't think we'd have be having the same conversation if we weren't both living in the U S um, I'm wondering if you um, have heard any feedback on these issues from Catholics in other countries at all who are like, I can't believe this is even a thing. Have you heard anything about people like talking about or commenting on your work from elsewhere in the world? Absolutely. Um, I think even it's part of the way we frame this is like uniquely American, right? So you, you said earlier, Greg, that you've lived in other countries that have generous paid leave that's a year. No one in those countries would deem that as generous. They would deem that as basic. Right. Right. (laughs) So even the way that we frame it, um, the, it truly is, I think your, your phrasing of it as intentionally cruel. It's intentionally cruel to provide, um, less than a year paid family leave. Um, and again, let's look at, I think it's important that we have an intersectional way of addressing this, um, that, People with an income of less than $30,000 a year are much less likely to have access to paid family leave. Um, And for those people, um, so one in four mothers who are not eligible for paid family leave return to work within 10 days. Mm. Right. So we're talking about eight weeks here in this conversation, 10 days. Um, Mm. that, that is cruel to the birthing parent that is cruel to the child that is cruel to the other family members, right? That this is, um, anyone who has had more than one child also knows 
it is an adjustment for the other children as well. It's an adjustment for the non-birthing parent, right? These are things that truly rock our worlds. And um, again, any way we look at life or health around it, those metrics dramatically go up with access to paid family leave. It's utterly heartbreaking. Like I'm emotionally reeling over here, listening to and, and contemplating what it would be like to go back to work 10 days and how if you didn't do that, the consequences and punishments that would be meted out on brand new mothers who are already stressed to the max. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you're fired because you're not here on such and such date. And this is what the law requires of us to offer you. And we offered it and you didn't meet your end of the bargain. So goodbye. And then all of a sudden, not only are you trying to care for a brand new baby, but you are also financially strapped to the gills. And like, I'm going to double down on my intentional cruelty comment. Um, I will not back off of that. Um the the lack of who is qualified for paid parental leave those statistics that you just offered i'm i'm really grateful that you went there because i'm just thinking about all of my friends in other countries now and how whenever i would describe to them what it was like here how their jaws would just be agape oh my goodness okay well you have a section of your article that i want to reflect on for a second um the article section uh, is about Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation on the family, uh, which opens with uh, the vision of the joy of love experienced by families is also the joy of the church. The joy of the family cannot be the joy of the church if employees of Catholic organizations are unsupported in family life. Catholic schools, parishes, nonprofits, and even the church hierarchy have the potential to model what truly pro-family paid leave might look like. One that goes beyond complying with our current inadequate national policy. And I loved this section of your article because it says it, uh, it, it encourages the church to push beyond the obviously nationally inadequate stance that most, that almost communicates an, Oh, well, this is what the federal government says. So we can't do any better than that. And I love the way you framed it because it says, go beyond the federal government, be the model that the federal government can adjust to for a more just future. And I absolutely love the fact that you said that. And I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit upon this part of the article, because I found it to be so perfectly stated. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I think there's a vision of the church that if the church is authentically church, yeah. right? If the church is church in the most robust way we can imagine, that would truly set an example for others, right? So that would set an example on how we employ others. What would happen if we were anti-racist in such a way that we called other people to that example? Right. So this this extends beyond employment law. Employment law is very important, but it extends beyond that. What if the way that we treated one another and welcomed one another across cultures, across ability levels, across immigration status, across race, across sexual orientation? What if we were so radically inclusive, so based in the gospel of Jesus? that it invited people to treat one another that way. And again, sadly, what I see is the opposite happening, that people see the harm caused by one church member to another, by a member of the hierarchy to a parishioner, right? Mm. Instead, the church is setting the opposite example. And that is not what the church should be. And that is not what the church could be. Mm. So I think there's a way that I imagine we can, again, look at something concrete like paid family leave and say, we can treat people better than this. This is what it means to support families. Um, so there's that example and vision that the church can be. Um, but then there's also the reality of in Washington, D.C., Georgetown University is the largest employer outside of the federal government. Wow. Right? So these are also just that is a lot of people we can impact. And that's also a market that we can impact. 
right? So if if Georgetown oh, University yeah. provided a year of paid family leave, people would come to work at Georgetown. Imagine the talent that would be drawn <laughs> to that organization. You'd have like top scientists and doctors who'd be like, I want to work there because then yes. I can still have a family and a good life and I can do good things for my kids. And that's the kind of place I want to work for. And then if other universities around the country see Georgetown doing that, then they're like, whoa, Georgetown's got this awesome policy. We're going to start changing as well. And the ripple effects could be dramatic. So, yes, it's a way that we can expand what it means to be pro-life. We can, in again, sidestep that political division of pro-life, pro-choice and say, here's what it means to enact a culture of life. It could also be a great thing for the larger community, right? That this has really real impact. So it's this beautiful ecclesial vision that I have, right? As a systematic theologian, (laughs) ecclesiologist, this is how we can be church, but it's also a way of treating people well and changing the concrete reality for people. Love it. Give me a little preview of what you're working on for the general public. What, uh, what What do you got in the pipeline? Um, There's an article coming out soon with the National Catholic Reporter on what Catholics can learn from the WNBA. Awesome. Um, If you don't watch the WNBA, you should. It's amazing basketball, but also these athletes um, truly live out an incredible commitment to social justice. So it looks at um, how we can learn from um, the athletes of the WNBA about social justice. Um, So that one um, should be coming out soon. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Andy Selleck, this is a a hard conversation, an important conversation, an inspiring conversation. Um, And I've learned so much just from my brief exposure to your work. And I'm grateful that there are people like you who are doing this work from within. I think that it's tremendously important, but also courageous. And I don't take that lightly, like the the stories of your life that you've shared with me here. I mean, I really do appreciate your your candor and your honesty and your energy and your inspiring hope for the future that we can do better within our institutions. It's really incredible. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell people where to find you if they want to follow you and know more about your work. Well, they can hop on Twitter is where I'm most active. Um, so I'm at A Selick, S-E-L-A-K. Um, and come come for the takes on power and authority in the Catholic Church. Stay for the takes on WMBA and the way that um, women um, can be included in the U.S. in a more robust way. Dr. Annie Selick, thank you so much for being here. This has been a real pleasure. Great. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks, Greg.